your seats, brethren, look in your Bibles to Revelation 2 and beginning at verse 18. Two weeks ago, we looked at the letter of our Savior to the church in Smyrna. That was the shortest letter. And this week, we come to his letter to the church in Thyatira, which is his lengthiest letter. So we're going to have to move quickly, and it's somewhat unfortunate because, as we'll see as I read through it, there's a lot of wonderful things our Savior says to his beloved people in the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2.18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works or deeds. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations." He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Little is known about the city of Thyatira. It was likely a smaller town known for its trade, William Henriksen said, Thyatira became a trading city filled with wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, etc. The only other time we find the city mentioned is in Acts 16.14. A certain woman named Lydia heard us, said the apostle. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God. Our Savior describes himself in verse 18 as typical with regards to his letters to his churches, in a way borrowed from the first chapter. Remember, he, his descriptions that he prefaces his letters with of himself borrow from the first chapter, and he tailor-makes them to meet the specific needs of each church. And so he describes himself in verse 18, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So first he describes himself with a title, the Son of God. That's a divine title. Remember the Jews hated Jesus and uh, sought to kill him because he claiming to be the Son of God, made himself equal with God. But then he describes himself in a twofold way. He who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now that's going to come back up in verse 23 when he's described as he who searches the minds and hearts. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees, he pierces into the darkness of the church and into the recesses of each soul, and he knows their thinking. And then he's described, he describes himself as having feet like fine brass. And uh, I think this is fundamentally a description of his power. Fine brass was beautiful, but it was really strong. It was pure brass. It was 
powerful. I think it's his strength that's here identified. And he's going to kill these wicked seducers in the church unless they repent. And then, of course, you also find something similar, don't you, in verse 27, where you have that quotation of Psalm 2. Uh, It's uh, originally true of him. It's applied here of his people. But uh, he will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, he's God, and as God, he sees everything, and he's all-powerful, and he searches the hearts and the minds of everybody in the church, and he will powerfully destroy the church's enemies unless they repent. Lenski put it this way. The flaming eyes penetrate into the deceptions of the false prophetess in Thyatira, and the feet that are similar to gold bronze crush and burn to ashes all such opposition. Remember our Savior always describes himself in these seven letters in ways relevant to the church, to that particular church. So we find in verses 18 and 19, accommodation, where our Savior points out what they're doing good. And then, unfortunately, in verse 20, there's a controversy where he points out what they're doing wrong. And then there's an exhortation to repent and to do right in verses 24 and 5. And then a twofold motive in 26 and following to entice them to obedience. So notice first accommodation in verses 18 and 19. We've already looked at verse 18. Notice verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, our Savior here commends the church in Thyatira for five related graces or virtues. Works, love, service, faith, and patience. Works is a generic term, and I'm going to argue here in a minute or suggest here in a minute that it's probably more specifically defined in the latter four things. Works, and then he describes the works in the last four things. But works, of course, refers to deeds. And love refers to our love to God, and here probably love to the brethren. Service refers to the humble, selfless, ministering to the needs of the saints. Faith, of course, refers to our faith in God and in his word. And the word patience refers to the endurance of trials. Patience or endurance through trials and tribulation. Now, as I've said, it's most probable that by works is meant those four things that follow works. In other words, when he says, I know your works, he means I know your works of love, service, faith, and patient endurance. He then commends their spiritual growth at the end of verse 19. And as for your works, that is the works identified in those four terms, love, service, faith, and patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That is, they grew in their works of love, service, faith, and patience. In other words, it was evident that they were spiritually maturing. They were growing spiritually. So what I want to do is to somewhat quickly here pause and digress for a few minutes and suggest two things with regards to spiritual growth. Notice it's need, and then secondly, it's means. It's need. Our Savior commends the church for its spiritual growth. Christians are expected to grow in works, love, service, faith, and patience. Or perhaps they're expected to grow in their works, i.e., their love, service, faith, and patience. Now, brethren, I know this is evident, and I trust it's agreed upon that Christians are to grow, 
But I think sometimes we can overlook the obvious. We are children of God and all children grow. My grandson is growing. He's getting longer. He's getting bigger because he's a child and that's healthy. If he wasn't growing, then there would be a problem. If a Christian isn't growing, and let me just put it like this too, there's a sense in which we always remain children of God. We're always growing. No Christian ever, in, in one sense, becomes full grown. Now I know the scriptures use that imagery to speak of mature Christians in contrast to immature Christians. But nevertheless, we are all in one sense or another children and as such we are to always grow and what are we to grow in well we are to grow in our love in our service in our faith and in our patient endurance so this text not only tells us that we're to grow but it also tells us what we're to grow in in other words it provides the marks of spiritual growth you know the church can grow in two ways it can grow numerically, and it can grow spiritually. Now, it's possible, isn't it, for a church to grow numerically and not spiritually? Right? I mean, the church can get bigger in terms of its size and not be growing spiritually with regards to its heart or its spirituality. It is possible... I would say it's not uncommon for a church to grow spiritually and not numerically. Ordinarily, though, when the Lord is fit to bless a church, it grows in both ways. And both ways are good, aren't they? We long to see our churches full. Rather, the smallest church doesn't win. Sometimes I think we have that misconception. The most faithful church is going to be the smallest church. And sometimes that may be true. But we pray that the church would be full. But more than that, brother, more than that, if we never have another baptism and we never have another application for membership all year, yay, all, for the rest of the decade, which is just a couple years, let's say we don't have another person make application for membership, as tragic and as sad as that would be, and it would be contrary to my prayers, I would rather that if in turn, or in, or in exchange of that, we all grew spiritually and personally. Now, of course, the, our prayers ought to be that the Lord open his hands and grow us spiritually and numerically. We long to see sinners saved and, and, and Christians taught the truth more fully. But nevertheless, what we need is spiritual growth. This is what he's commending them for. He's not commending them for numerical growth. In fact, he's actually going to encourage them to downsize here in a moment because Jezebel and her offspring, he wants them removed. And those were members of the church who were teaching heresy. Far better to have a smaller church that's unified and that's spiritually fit and holy than to have a big church that's a mess. Thyatira is an example of that, isn't it? So we have to ask ourselves this question, are we growing? And that's a, that's, that can be a generic question so we have to put some meat on its bones are we growing in our love service faith and patient endurance well the text not only suggests the need for but the provision for or of spiritual growth the means how do Christians grow well, I have to admit here, it's not spelled out, is it? One, two, three. But I think if we just look at these graces or virtues that they're commended for growing in, we can from that gather some evidence with regards to how we're to grow. And it really concerns the relation of these four or five graces. depends on how you package them. Let's put it like this. We know from other texts that these all relate one to another as offspring of faith. Okay? So Jesus put faith there. Admittedly, he didn't put it first. But we know from the rest of the Bible that faith is the root from which all of these graces grow. Faith is the root 
from which all of these graces grow. And why is that? Because faith fetches strength and grace from Christ. And we can only grow as we abide in Christ. We can only bear fruit as we abide in Christ. In other words, brethren, we cannot grow as Christians unless we have faith in Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Here's what matters. But faith working through love. Faith working through, by or because of love. So you see here a psychology or a theology of works. How do we do works? Well, Paul says we do works by faith that works because of love. So how is it then that we're to endure? How is it that we're to have patience? How is it that we are to grow in service one to another? How are we to humble ourselves and put the needs of others before our own? Spiritual and physical needs. Well, we have to have faith that works because of love. Why do we do what we do, brethren? Because of love, right? We love God and we love the brethren. And how do we grow in our love to God and to the brethren? By faith. That means we get grace and and strength from, from Christ. Grace is the pipe. The pipe through which grace comes to our hearts and souls. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We get everything we need to become a Christian and to live as a Christian from Christ. And how do we get it from Christ? How is it brought from Christ to our hearts? Through the pipe of faith. Through the means of faith. And so nobody ever grows in grace without growing in faith, right? That's an evident, I think that's a biblical principle that we can prove by many texts. I have other ones, but I'll skip them. And thus, the all-important question now becomes, brethren, is this. How are Christians to grow in faith? If Christians are expected to grow, and they can only grow by faith, How are they to grow or how are they to strengthen their faith? Well, that's a good question and I'm glad you asked it because I'm going to answer it. And I have a threefold way. But I have to clarify on the front end, I don't have anything really exciting to tell you about growing in faith. In fact, it's going to be the same thing I told you 15 years ago and every year in between and probably every month and week in between. But we have to be told again, don't we, brother? And that's the good thing about it. It's, it's evident and it's obvious right before our face. It's not a secret that only certain people are privy to. Now, this is right before us on every page of the Bible. There's three ways we grow in faith. One, by prayer. Faith is a grace. Faith is a gift, Right? And if faith is a gift, then doesn't the Bible say we have to ask for it? Remember the apostles put it like this. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Brother, we have to ask that God would strengthen our faith that we might get more grace from Jesus, that we might grow in our love, service, and patience. Secondly, through scripture. Scripture is the means through which God gives us faith. He he gives us faith. It's a grace. But he gives it through means. And the means he gives it is an answer to prayer through the holy word of God. For example, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God gives us faith as we hear the word of God. As we hear about God. As we hear about all the things found in the scripture. As we hear about Christ, as we behold his cross and his empty tomb, 
and his throne. All through the Bible, God, the Holy Spirit, communicates as we hear that word. He accompanies it. He blesses it to our hearts and he strengthens our faith. Faith comes through hearing. Sinner, faith comes through hearing. You need to hear the word of God preached. That's what Paul means, by the way, when he says hearing. He's talking about hearing it read and preached. Sinners ought to hear the word of God preached. Why? Because God ordinarily gives saving faith through the means of the preached word. Christians have to hear the word preached. And that's why we come to church. To hear the word of God. That faith, in part, that faith would be increased. Now that we live in an era where we have the Bible, which was rare in olden days, we ought to read the Bible and study the Bible, meditate on the Bible, and memorize the Bible for ourselves. Brethren, you know that for the first 1,500 years, they only heard the Bible read and preached in church. And now we have it in our homes. And we have to read it. And we have to study it, meditate on it, and memorize it. Why? Because it's in and through the word that the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith, which enables us to grow. There's a third way, through triumphs. I mentioned this recently with regards to Martin Luther, how he thought all three of these were needed to make a theologian. To make a theologian, he said, you have to be in seminary for eight years and get a master's and a doctorate. Oh, wait a minute. No, he didn't say that. He said you need three things. Prayer, the Bible, and triumphs. You need three professors. Prayer, the Bible, and triumphs. And while we should never pray for trials, right? I don't think anywhere in the Bible, unless you can show me, we find Christians asking for trials, but we are to improve upon our trials to the end that our faith is strengthened. Now, there's two key texts that tell us this. The one is in the first chapter of James, remember? Uh, Consider it joy, brethren, when you endure all kinds of trials, knowing that trials are intended to strengthen your faith, which strengthens other things. But you also find it in 1 Peter 1.7, where Peter simply says, your faith is tested through your trials. And it's tested and it's proven genuine, that's what he says, and it's strengthened, it's purified. Remember, it's, it's uh, to test something is to, to purify it in order to not only authenticate it, but to really to strengthen it. And that's the imagery behind fine brass. Jesus describes himself as fine brass. He's pure. He's powerful. He's strong. And our faith is weak. At least mine is, and I know most of yours, you would say, is. And what is one way the Lord has ordained to strengthen, to purify, to test, to temper that faith is through trials. And so we have to not pray for trials as much as endure them gladly and humbly improving upon them that our faith would be strengthened in the process. Jesus commends the church for its spiritual growth. And by inference, we learn both the need and the means for it. Now, as some of the other churches, if we ended there, it would be all good. But we come very abruptly, perhaps as abrupt as any of the letters, he goes from good to bad. Verse 20, nevertheless. Brother, if we just thought, I mean, this church is commended not only for having those virtues, works, faith, love, service, and patience, but they were growing in it. They were abounding in it, brother. Man, what a wonderful church. Yeah. Who would have known Jezebel was teaching there? Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow. See, this is what their problem is. They were allowing something. That means they were not dealing with it. 
They may not have been listening to her. In fact, the, the inferences, the, 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 the Christians who are growing that are commended were not listening to her. That's what he says in verse 24. But the leadership allowed her. And that's the controversy that Jesus has with the church as a whole as a result. Now, uh, here we have to wrestle a little bit with this person identified as Jezebel. By Jezebel, it can mean one of three things. First, she was a literal woman who was literally named Jezebel. That's a possibility. Or else, secondly, she was a literal woman called Jezebel in that she was similar to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. That's what I would... This, the second view, I think, is probably the more, more, uh, more probable of the three views. I mean, if you think about it, remember back in verse, what was it, uh, 14? He talked about the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, well, Balaam wasn't literally there teaching in that church. He's saying that the false teachers in that church were echoing the teaching of Balaam in the Old Testament. And I think what he's probably saying here is that this woman who called herself a prophetess was teaching a doctrine that led to similar things that Jezebel's uh, teaching did in the Old Testament. But it's also possible, the third option, that is, it simply refers to the false prophets as a whole, and he's speaking of them as this woman Jezebel. That's actually a very, that's a very good possibility. Um, it's, it, so it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that she's a literal woman. It could be just the false teachers, and he's referring to them as Jezebel. But it just seems like, if you just read through the passage, it's most likely this was a false teacher, a prophetess named we don't know her name, but she was similar to her namesake in the Old Testament, Jezebel, who is, according to verse 20, uh, teaching and seducing Jesus' servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's most likely that uh, by sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols is speaking about literal idolatry and adultery. Uh, remember those go together. Um, because of the pagan temples, uh, there was oftentimes sexual immorality associated with pagan worship. And so they were being tempted, seduced, through the instruction of, apparently of this woman, or at least the false teachers in the church, that they could go back into the temples. It, it, it's possible that it had something to do with that trade that I mentioned that was, that was famous in Thyatira. Uh, they could go into the, the pagan uh, temples and trade and, and make a buck, and while you're there, maybe just go ahead and partake into their, with, in, uh, in, the, in their meals and, and other things. And... Uh, and it was all justified because you were making a living or you were, you were making money. But either way, we're said, according to verse 23, that she had children. And I take children there not to mean literal children, but to mean her offspring. Uh, <clears throat> her spiritual disciples. Her spiritual offspring, if you will. And so it's possible... Uh, bisexual immorality is meant spiritual immorality, but it's, it's more, I think, probable to take sexual immorality and the eating of sacrifices to idols, eating things sacrificed to idols, as we could, might could call that spiritual adultery or immorality. It was idolatrous worship, coupled likely with sexual immorality. And if that's the case, then you can see why Jesus is not happy about this false teacher. He calls Jezebel. He's probably calling her that in a way that's negative. 
she's a Jezebel, right? That's a, that's, I mean, there's just some names, brother, that Christians, <laughs> I just, I doubt we would ever call our children Jezebel, right? I mean, it just doesn't suit, I mean, I can't say it would be wrong, but I just don't know of any Christian who's ever done it. Jezebel, it has a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? Because of who she was in the Old Testament. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, we also find, and I have to skip over it because of time, in verse 20, a, a really kind of thorough theology of false teaching. Um, for one, she's a prophetess. You know that there were women prophets or prophetesses in the New Testament, but they were never allowed to teach publicly. Uh, there's no evidence of them teaching as pastors. In fact, there's clear texts that forbid it. Paul forbids a woman to teach or to have authority over man in the congregation. So this woman was probably, if she was publicly teaching, she, she was usurping an office she had no right to have. Or it's possible, too, that she was teaching not from the pulpit, but from the pew. Maybe she just was leading a, a Bible study or something like that. And she was, according to verse 20, teaching and seducing Jesus' servants. Brethren, that's a tremendously frightful phrase. She was teaching some way, somehow, okay? And in her teaching, she was seeking to seduce. And that's, I think, an intentional phrase. She's a woman. She's seducing them. She's a but all false teachers are seducers of God's people. And that's why Jesus threatens himself, as we'll see in verse 23, to kill her with death. That's actually how the text says in verse 23. He's going to kill her with death and her offspring unless they repent. Why? Because these are his children. She was seeking to seduce with her teaching, with her instruction, Jesus' servants. Now, let me very quickly, as we uh, consider this controversy in verse 20, suggest two things about Jesus himself. First, Christ is protective. Our, our Savior threatens Jezebel in verse 22 with sickness. And again, I, I, it, that, I, I take that to, to mean literal sickness. Great tribulation, verse 22, and death. I take that to mean physical death. Verse 23, he's going to kill her. Now, a lot of people possibly would be amazed, perhaps even put out by this description of Jesus. I will cast her into a sickbed. I will kill her children with death. And that's because people have a misconception of Jesus, right? Jesus here is described as the Son of God with flaming eyes and feet like brass, fine brass. He's not going to suffer this wicked woman to seduce his beloved people and not be punished for it. Brother, that's a tragic... There's fewer, there's fewer things more serious than to be a false teacher in Jesus' churches seeking to seduce his servants. I would argue there's no worse thing to be. Far better to just get out of the church and go be a drunken whoremonger and a vagabond for the rest of your life. Your judgment will be far less than to be a seducer of God's people. Spurgeon said, I'm not afraid. I am not afraid for the church of God. I tremble not for the cause of God. Our jealous husband will never let his church be in danger. And if any smite her, he will give them double for every blow. If anybody messes with the church, Spurgeon says, Jesus will give them double for every blow. But Christ is not only protective, but he's patient. Brother, what a perfect portrayal of Jesus. He's 
he's already given time for Jezebel to repent. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So now he's going to bring judgment upon her, and now he's exhorting her children, verse 23, to repent. And if they don't repent, then he will kill them with death also. I will kill their children with death. And all the churches shall know that I'm he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. That's actually a a rough uh, quotation, paraphrase of Jeremiah 17.10. The Lord knows the hearts. He searches the hearts. And he will give everyone in accordance to their deeds. the, The works here in verse 23 are their wicked deeds. In other words, the judgment of Jesus is just. Okay, so he's protective and he's patient, but we could add, brethren, he is just in all his ways. What he's going to give them is what they deserve. He's going to deal with them according to their works, according to their deeds. Brethren, judgment is always deserved. Always Judgment is always deserved. But the interesting thing here is Jesus' patience in the midst of such wickedness. I gave her time to repent. He gave Jezebel time to repent. And now he's giving Jezebel's children time to repent. And then that brings us to this exhortation in verse 24 and 5. Now he's going to return back to those who he commended. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, that is, as many as in the church who are not taking heed or being seduced by the doctrine of Jezebel. And then he says, who have not known the depths of Satan. Her teaching, uh, which led to that immoral practice, is here described as the deep things of Satan, the depths of Satan. In other words, as she proposed to be a minister of light, she was in fact a minister of Satan. And then this phrase, as they say, it goes back to the the phrase, the depths of Satan, as they say. It's probably that Jesus is here referring to false teaching that was rather common throughout the first century. In fact, Pastor Jason dealt with some of it in in his exposition of Colossians. It was a teaching that supposed people getting special insight into things which would allow them to be the super holy ones. Right? I mean, the preacher's just telling you about Jesus and, you know, the same old, same old. But we have a teaching that would take you into the deep things of God. Now, the deep things of God here is supposed liberties with regards to the pagan temples and and assumedly the the prostitutes. I mean, this guy is just telling the same old things. We have special revelation from God. And and you know what, brother? It's even possible that she wasn't... Well, obviously she wasn't a true prophetess. It was probable that she was seducing people with her supposed special revelations. And her special revelations were contrary to the what? The written revelation of God. We're not to worship uh, idols... And we're certainly not to partake in wickedness that took place in the pagan temples. Those are violations of all, every one of the Ten Commandments. Certainly the first and the seventh. But sometimes, brethren, that just gets to be old news. Telling us again about the commandments and about Jesus. This lady has something new. And what happens is... People are prone to listen to something new because there's oftentimes something inside them that wants to do wicked things and justify it. This lady is telling us that we can go and do those things and possibly even be more spiritual for it. Jesus 
Jesus speaks of those things as the deaths of Satan. And he actually commends them for being ignorant of it. You know, brethren, ignorance in some things is good. Right? Ignorance in wickedness is a good thing, isn't it? And this is what Jesus commends them for. You have not known. You haven't been seduced by this wicked woman. And you haven't partook of these wicked things she's advocating. And thus he says at the end of 24, Revelation 2.24, I will put on you no other burden. Now, at least two or three of the commentators pointed back to uh, Acts 15. Remember, I think I read a portion of that that letter in Acts 15. That was the, the apostolic letter written in Jerusalem to the churches to help them sort through some of these controversies. And he basically, in that letter of Acts 15, simplified things and exhorted them to stay away from the pagan worship in, in, in the pagan temples and the sexual immorality that was associated with it. It's possible that Jesus uh, is thinking back to that. I, I'm going to put on you nothing else than what was put on you in Acts 15. But I think it's more probable, personally, that he's just simply saying, I've already burdened you with these stern warnings of judgment upon Jezebel and her children, and I'll leave it at that. I'll put on you no other burden. It's really probable, brethren, that Jesus is here showing his, um, his patience and his love and his compassion and his understanding for the weaknesses of his people. He's spoken very plain, hasn't he? He said he's going to come and kill them with death. And that no doubt troubled the consciences of the people of God in Thyatira. And he's like, that's enough. He says, uh, I'll put on you nothing other than what I've just put on you. I'll leave it at that. And then he gives them a positive, verse 25. But hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. I think by what you have is meant um, all that they were commended for. They were commended for their increase or growth in works, faith, love, service, and patience. And I think he's telling them to hold fast the good that you have. Brethren, he's really going back to his commendation. But hold fast what you have. And then he says, till I come. Then if you look in verse 26, he says, uh, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. I think, I think when he says, and keeps my works, he's thinking back to the five things he commended them for. He here describes them as his works because they're done ultimately, I said, through him, right? Faith in him. And they're done for him. They're his works. And I think, again, that goes back to those four things. Faith, love, patience, and service. But the question here is, is what does he mean? And I think they mean the same things. By verse 25, until I come, or until the end. Well, those are obviously saying the same things. Till I come, or till the end. And uh, I would suggest most likely he's talking about until they're until they finish the race, that is, until they die, or else until he returns. It's possible that he's talking about him coming and, 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 and killing the, the false teachers with physical death. It would be like a spiritual coming, right? He would come spiritually, and he himself would kill them through, through physical death. Put them on a sickbed and kill them. But it's possible that he means that. Hold fast until I come and take him out of here. But it's more likely speaking about, especially because of verse 26, because in all the other letters, he overcomes is a reference to the end. And that end is one of two. Our death or his return. Right? All right, that leaves us to the motivation verse 26 and following. And there's a twofold motivation. 
First, in verse 26, Jesus says, I will give him power over the nations. And then in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. These are the things he promises to give to them who overcome. And again, who are the overcomers? Christians who endure to the end. Christians who endure to the end. Every Christian endures to the end. These are overcomers. And remember, whatever these two things mean, they have reference to what we get when we die in, 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 in measure and what we'll have in full at the resurrection. So whatever these two things mean, it's talking about the benefits and the blessings we will get when we die, which we have now in, in measure, right? I mean, we're going to see that in a minute. We'll get it more fully when we die because our souls will be perfected and we'll be taken away from this world. No more opposition, no more trial, no more Jezebels. And then, of course, we'll get it in full when we get our glorified, resurrected body in the new heavens and earth. All right, let's go through them very quickly. Verse 26. To him I will give power over the nations. Now he then quotes in verse 27, Psalm 2.9. I will give power, 26, over the nations. Verse 27. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Now in Psalm 2.9, who's the he? Jesus. Right? The Messiah. And yet, Jesus is applying this text, this messianic psalm, to his people. I will give power over the nations. They will sit with me on my throne. And then the last part of 27. As I also have received from my Father. So it goes like this. The Father has given the Son a throne in reward of his overcoming and the son allows us to sit on that throne in reward of our overcoming now brethren it's true isn't it that we already in one sense sit all right paul says that in, in, is it, in ephesians 2 we are already sitting in the heavenlies in christ when we become a christian and yet we're going to experience this in a fuller sense in our glorification. But you have to remember that it's union with Jesus. We're his bride. I mean, the imagery of a jealous husband kind of runs through this, doesn't it? He's our husband. We're his bride. And when we are joined with him by faith and, and made one with him publicly in baptism... We're letting everybody know that what Jesus has is mine and what I have is his. He has a throne and we have sin. He has blood and righteousness to cover over our sin and to atone for it. And he has a throne. What do we have? Nothing. But when we marry him, we have everything, right? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Those who come to Jesus knowing that they haven't anything but sin and guilt. Jesus takes that upon himself and he washes us and he cleanses us. But brother, that's only the first half of what he does. The second half is he justifies us. He declares us righteous and he gives us a kingdom. And if he gives, a, and if he gives us a kingdom, well, then of necessity, there's a throne in that kingdom. And he's sitting on it and we in him. That's what he says. So he can give it to us in verse 26 because his father gave it to him in verse 27. Secondly, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Now, let me ask you this question. Who is the morning star? Well, it's Jesus himself. Right? I mean, that's, we find that, for example, in the, in the last chapter of this book, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, he says, I am the bright and morning star. We also find it in Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy, but in uh, Daniel, and in Matthew. In Matthew 13, it talks about, and this is the connection, in Matthew 13, it talks about us in the resurrection, rising up and shining like the noonday sun, like stars. 
It's, it, I think what Jesus is saying here is, just as you sit with me now when you're converted, when you become a Christian on a throne, and then you'll sit with me in a fuller sense in the new heavens and earth, you already have the bright morning star that's dawned in your heart when you became a Christian, right? That's, what, how, that's how Solomon puts it in Proverbs 4. The path of the righteous is like the morning or uh, it's like the dawning of the of the of the morning that gets brighter until full noon. So Jesus has already dawned in our hearts, brother. We already have him. And we're going to have him in the fullest sense when our bodies are glorified like his and we shine with him in the new heavens and the and earth. With a, with a glorified body and a perfected soul. So when Jesus says that I will give him the morning star, he's talking about himself. Now let me just quickly put it like this in closing. Do you remember what Peter said? Let me just turn you there for a second because I'm going to misquote it. Look at verse uh, 19, 2 Peter 1. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do out of heed as a light that shines in a dark place. In other words, Jesus has given us his word as a star, if you will, to lead us to the, to the promised land. And we need to take heed to that word. Then notice the last part of verse 19. Until the day dawns. What is that talking about? It's talking about the resurrection. Remember, it's talking about the resurrection when our bodies come out of the ground. Until the day dawns. And listen. And the morning star rises in your hearts. That, you know what that refers to? It simply refers to our glorification. And that's exactly what Jesus says. In terms of promise to the church at Thyatira. And to him, the overcomer, I will give the morning star. Well, we have to end there, brethren. But surely there's lot of things to think about in this wonderful little letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Thyatira. Well, we have to move uh, on to our division into groups. You may, and then Hakum can answer. find it all in this letter, don't we? The seriousness of sin that's going to warrant Jesus to come and kill them with death, his graciousness in delaying that, his holiness and purity and love for his people in executing it. Oh, it's all there, brother, for sure. I just want to pray for a couple of things very quickly and then we'll dismiss. Um, two things. Uh, pray for the Lord uh, for the ministry of the word last week and this week uh, this is a second Sunday so pray for Mike Spicker as he anticipates uh, teaching us at the table and, and pray for us